Citizen Podcast. Welcome to Citizen Podcast. This is Carrie Kelly. I'm stepping out of the way this week to make space for a really important conversation between my friend Ryan Lemire and Onika Mays about recovery and healing from incarceration. Ryan Lemire is an artist, design strategist, and founder of Aligned Magazine who is exploring the crossroads of well-being, culture, and social responsibility. And he's talking to Onika Mays, who is the first mindfulness coach at Rikers Island Correctional Facility, where she works one-on-one with incarcerated folks to help them cope with the stress and trauma of incarceration and foster resilience for reentry and recovery. There is a strange reference right now about how being in isolation and physical distancing is akin to being locked up or denied one's freedom. We're seeing that narrative replicated around the country in the many white-led protests to stay-at-home rules. But let us be clear, this quarantine is nothing like what people experience in prison. In fact, the outbreaks in prisons around the country reveal that incarcerated people are both more exposed and less able to protect themselves. And beyond the current circumstances, many are questioning the role and efficacy of incarceration altogether. One of those advocates is Onika Mays. She says, Our criminal justice system is a reflection of the society that we live in. And changes in society will change the way that we police, will change the way that we treat certain people in schools and in certain neighborhoods. And when those kinds of things change, when we change our perception of the way that we view groups of people, that will lead to lasting change. This conversation is fierce and vulnerable and exactly what we all need to hear right now. I'm so grateful to Ryan and Onika for putting forth the courageous conversation that we all need to be a part of. Stay tuned for calls to action at the end of this episode for how you can take action to support decarceration and restorative justice. Check it out. I am here with Onika Mays. She is a talent of many sorts, a wonderful soul. Um, a dear friend, and officially your your work title is full time mindfulness meditation coach. Yes, and you're and you're at and you're at Rikers Island. And how long have you been there? I have been um, I've been at Rikers full time now for um, about a year and a half. I have been working in and out. I think of Rikers now though for going on six almost seven, seven years, maybe in some capacity doing yoga or meditation. Mm -hmm. Uh, But Mm -hmm. I started working full time with health and hospitals. That's who I officially work for. Um, That started about a year and a half ago when they started a pilot program, a wellness program at Rikers for people who um, were struggling with the adjustment um, being in jail. So I'm a part of a team. One person does acupuncture. There's a wellness coach and I do um, all sorts of mindfulness and movement practices with folks one-on-one. And you've done so much outside of that context too and before that, and I think we can get into into the nitty-gritty of what you're doing now and in, in a bit of in a bit of what's led up to that. 
I would love to situate us, because you and I are not strangers. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, situate us and situate those listening to how you and I started um, our friendship and how we're here talking. So I'm here. I thought I would share, you know, as working with Carrie, working with Citizen Well, as being as being in relationship there for some time now, fortunate to start hosting my own conversations. And I'm, and I'm really grateful that you and I get to have, you know, the first of that, of, of me being here. And I get to, and I get to share that with you. And you and I met years ago at this point, maybe four, I'm not sure. Um, but I was calling you not too dissimilar to this conversation. <laughs> Uh, for my magazine project because I wanted to interview you or I wanted, or we were setting up an article for you to write, right? Yeah, that sounds right. Yeah. Um, I think we were talking about the idea of being a teacher, a yoga teacher who teaches through a a different lens and and maybe sort of um, disrupting the system of what it means to be a yoga teacher through a trauma sensitive or a trauma conscious lens. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. And the, the magazine Project for Context really explores that intersection of social responsibility and, mm-hmm. and a wellness culture. And anyway, and so on that call, you had mentioned a weekend training with Liberation Prison Yoga that you would be a part of, and we hadn't yet met in person. And so something behooved me to go and take that training. I didn't expect much to come out of it, but I was excited to meet you. And since then, I ended up being enrolled in that program and having the, the, the fortunate experience of being able to learn from you as we were going into Manhattan Detention Center, which is downtown, um, teaching, teaching yoga specifically, yoga meditation specifically to the THU, the trans housing unit there. Yeah. And from there, from there, we became friends. Yes. And, you know, um, our conversation, I think, I think really set the stage for, aside from just a, a great friendship, I really loved when you came to the training, you asked actually a question that really sat with me and you were asking a question around what, what, what would it look like for somebody who is cis male and queer um, going into an environment where folks are incarcerated? Um, would it mean that you would have to sort of change who you were? Um, I don't know if you even remember asking that question. Um, I, I do because I was, I was shaking a little bit beforehand because I knew it was going to ruffle some feathers. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And we were, we were talking about um, men teaching men. Yep. There was a little unit about men teaching men. And, and I was sitting there not really intending ever to teach anyway. And I think it was because I didn't think there was any capacity for me to go in mm-hmm. and, and teach I don't feel that my mannerisms would be safe in a place, or I didn't feel that my mannerisms would be safe in a place um, like a jail or a prison mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. as a gay person. Yeah. And so, yes, I do remember asking yeah. that. Yeah. Um, and I remember it was um, such a powerful question. And I, I don't even think, I think my answer was, I don't know. I, don't, I, I think we had, we ended up having sort of a deeper conversation around what it really looks like and and the whole idea of queerness and incarceration um, 
was something that I really started to to think about and and what does it mm-hmm. mean. Um, I think particularly in in an environment in a men's facility um, or people who are male identified and inside jail and, and what that looks like if you're queer. And I remember thinking, I really like this human. I need to know him more. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, I'm super grateful that, that we've been able to, you know, hold that friendship. And you were one of the last people that I saw before this lockdown. Yes. Yes. If not the last person I saw before this I lockdown. actually think you were the last person that I saw before the whole lockdown happened. Um, it's been, yeah, it, it was, um, we were having another lovely conversation around incarceration too and, and what it looks like to queer out wellness spaces for um, all different environments. We were talking about that a little bit. We were talking about um, jail a little bit. And we were sort of tangentially talking about COVID, but all sort of just not realizing what that Monday would look like. It was a Friday we saw each other, right? I can't remember. Yeah, but just a few days later, it seemed like the world changed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It did. It did. Um, so how have you been? Um, how are you taking care right now? Uh, you know, I'm... I'm feeling well today. I'm feeling very solid today. Um, I it's been up and down for me. When I I didn't I didn't leave. I've been home officially for a month and one day actually. So I, I think I was um, quarantined a little bit later than other folks. I was still going into Rikers, and I left on the the 16th or the 17th. And the first couple of weeks, I was feeling a mixture of rage and fury and guilt over what was happening. And I, I don't think I was doing a, a really great job taking care of myself because I was so worried about people who are inside. And just like we talk about so much in this work, I needed to, to really settle and take care of myself and figure out how I was gonna support myself and then figure out ways to um, support people who are still incarcerated while this is all going on. Um, mm-hmm. Taking care of myself has looked like a combination of things. Sometimes it's actually just been crying into a pillow Um, I've been doing a lot of yoga at home. I've been doing a lot of sitting and also I've really been appreciating being able to share space with folks online, whether it's Mm -hmm. doing meditations with other teachers and, and sitting in. And I was, um, I, Lama Rod Owens has been doing a a medicine Buddha practice on Mondays at seven o'clock on his zoom. And that's been really nurturing. Um, I've been leading some meditations as well, and, and that's felt really good. And um, I think those are really the big ways, but I'm letting myself sort of feel whatever I'm feeling in any moment. And I think that's probably been the best way that I've been taking care of myself, not pushing anything down. Mm-hmm. There has been a lot of there have been so many feelings and a lot of decompressing. I think I was also just doing for the first couple of weeks. I've been watching some, you know, bad reality TV, which is, which has <laughs> let me giggle a lot. Um, I, I, I feel a little embarrassed with some of the things that I've been watching, but it's been making me laugh really hard and making my partner shake her head. But um, that's been fun. Um, I'm quarantined with my girlfriend right now. We don't, we don't live together, but we're together now. So we've been playing some games. She ordered an eighties trivia game, which we've been having a lot of fun with too. So, yeah. 
So you're taking care. I am. Yeah. Uh, Tara Brock has a thing that she repeats often, and I realized that it came from a poem about Hokusai, where she often talks about letting life live through you. Mm-hmm. And I think about that a lot right now, especially as you're talking about just allowing yourself to feel whatever you're feeling. Yeah, you can't run. To let life live through you. Yeah, you can't run. I, I think especially, you know, I, I've been seeing so many people make comparisons to feeling like they're in jail um, with this with this whole experience. And it, it is confining. Um, and you are sitting with yourself a lot, maybe more than you normally would. And also sitting with other people if you're not by yourself who may not spend a lot of time sitting with themselves and in relative stillness because the world has really come to a stop. Mm -hmm. That's an interesting comparison to make. And I think maybe we can use that as a dive in mm -hmm. to a deeper conversation about the work that you do in the jail. Mm -hmm. You know, I, yeah, go ahead. I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm, I guess I'm surprised, like that is, on one hand, there are things that are similar, right, mm -hmm. to staying in one place with your thoughts for an extraordinary amount of time. Mm -hmm. um, of course, you know, it bears repeating that it's it's a it's a gross comparison at the same time. Absolutely, absolutely, it's it is, and and also I understand why people are saying it but it also just shows how little people understand about incarceration and that we are still free. We can't, <laughs> we are told that we are to shelter in place, um, but we can still open our door. We can still go to the store. For those of us who can, there are many who are struggling and, and who are actually trapped in some dangerous situations, but those aren't the folks that I'm talking about. I'm talking about folks who are kind of joking about this idea that they're in jail. Um, but the idea that you, you know, there, that you don't have agency over your body is the kind of thing that I end up talking to people day in and day out about, you know, when I do the work that I do and, and it, the conversations get pretty intimate too, because I'm, I'm not working in groups. I, I think sometimes people hear about meditation or yoga in jail. There's a lot of group classes that happen, but the work that I do is one-on-one. -on -one. So people come see me for an individual meditation session and we get to spend time together. Um, and you do hear far more intimate details of what it feels like to not be able to be by yourself. And that's a luxury that some of us have the ability to have right now, not all of us, but some of us have the ability to be still and to stop. And it's done in a way where we can be quiet. We can sit with ourselves. We may have access to certain luxuries and in, in our homes, but it's very different when you are not able to leave and the circumstances that you might even go back to could be just as dangerous, if not more dangerous than the environment of jail. Mm -hmm. A lot of people are talking about this moment as a really traumatizing moment. Mm -hmm. And I think what that can highlight, if anything, and I agree with that, I think what that can highlight, if anything, is maybe 5% of 
the trauma of being incarcerated. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Oh, absolutely. You know, if I could, I would love for every person to understand what our system actually feels like to be incarcerated. Um, because it is very traumatizing. And as you know, that it's, and it's not just the idea that you can't leave, but it's all that comes with it um, from the way that you are spoken to and the way that the system just operates and, and even things like noise, right? Um, I'm sitting here in the quiet of my apartment, um, but the noise inside jail is soul shaking, right? And you don't have an ability to be still, which is, I think, something that people really appreciate being able to come to, to meditation by themselves because there's an opportunity for sometimes for folks just to be quiet and we don't talk at all. Mm -hmm. We just sit. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. A lot of people right now are talking about being able to hear the birds more mm -hmm. and, you know, tapping into those subtleties of, of what's around them and, and the jail environment is anything but that. Anything, <clears throat> excuse me, it's anything but that. And I think, um, I think that's one of many reasons why I am grateful that I'm able to do the work that I do to provide a space for people to step away from the madness. That's the environment itself. And then also just the madness of um, dealing with a court case of even the situation and the trauma, which um, may have put people in situations where they've ended up in jail. Um, there's so much activity and there is no ability just to be still. Um, not even when you're sleeping. I mean, you're thinking about, you know, the lights don't completely ever go off. So there's never any darkness. There's never any time to have that opportunity where you can sit quietly. Um, mm -hmm. which is why an environment of any sort of quiet, I think is, um, really necessary, really, mm -hmm. really necessary. And Rikers has been in the news lately in the past few months for many, for many different things, but in the past few weeks, especially too, with what's going on with COVID as people are really calling on administrators to release a bunch of folks. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious what your thoughts are. You know, I pulled some stats, but I'm curious what your thoughts are with, I think this is maybe the first time that a general population is looking at a place like Rikers or looking at, at, at the jail system and, and the prison system in general and really questioning maybe why these people are here in the first place. Um, Right, if they're if they're even considered to be able to be released at the drop of a at the drop of a hat, right? Mm -hmm. As if it were that simple. But I'm curious what you think about about that, and 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 if there's a change in public perception, or or what's I guess what's being exposed, you know, that may have not been exposed otherwise without without this pandemic. Yeah, I, I think what's being exposed is the fact that the system is working as well as it's working. Um, and this is something I, I say a lot, and I'm sure you've probably heard me say it. I know a lot of people say that the justice system is broken, but I think it's doing its job. And what I think people have seen that since, since this pandemic is that 
the system is working very well. And there are a lot of people who get arrested from particular neighborhoods of uh, a certain socioeconomic status um, for crimes that in other neighborhoods, or if they look different, they wouldn't be arrested. Um, and we're seeing that you know, in a situation like this, where there is a virus going around that's killing people and people can't actually maintain social distancing, well, why are we, why were these people there in the first place? I do hear that question being asked. And then you hear the other side too, that there's still a whole bunch of folks who also think that, well, if they must have done something because they're there. Um, but I do like to think, and I, I've heard more voices say the opposite, that folks why are folks there in the first place? Um, and I think it shows that we have inequalities. We have neighborhoods that are over-policed. Um, and we have neighborhoods that not are just over-policed, but we have more people arrested for crimes that they shouldn't be. Um, and it's an inequality that we see that I've, I've been seeing being black, being queer all of the time. But I think folks who have our home now watching the news are starting to realize there's a problem and they're seeing it for the first time. I want to give a special shout out to our community of supporters on Patreon who are making it possible for us to do this work especially during this pandemic, when we are being called to work harder than ever to expose the inequities of our systems and advocate for the policies that take care of everyone. We could not keep going without you. Citizen Podcast was designed for truth seekers, bridge builders, and emerging activists who are yearning to make a difference. We're not afraid to ask hard questions and have radical dialogue about politics and patriarchy, white supremacy and worthiness. And we're serious about showing up for one another and taking action for the well-being of everyone. But we can't do it alone. And building this community on Patreon is our way of sustaining this work in relationship and in accountability with you. By joining our community for as little as $2 a month, you help us create content and resources that matter to this moment. And you get lots of good stuff from us, like early access to our episodes, live community meetups, ally toolkits, and exclusive content. Not only does community support keep us going, but it keeps us accountable and real and pushing the envelope of courageous conversations that are independent, transparent, and authentic. Please join us at patreon.com slash citizenwell. Do you imagine that after pandemic time that we could see, that we could potentially maybe see a little bit of lasting change in the way that people are put and dragged through the system? <sighs> yes, and I don't think that change is gonna happen with what's happening with the criminal justice system. I think that that change is going to happen with the way that we treat each other and what we see happening in schools first, because that's where I think a lot of this starts. I think our criminal justice system is a reflection of the society that we live in. And I think mm -hmm. changes in society will change the way that we police, will change the way that we treat certain people in schools and different, in certain neighborhoods. And when those kinds of things change, we change perception of the way that we view groups of people. That I think will lead to lasting change. That is where I think the change starts. 
And there seems to be a seed of that. Oh, I absolutely. Right yeah, I, yeah. I, I do think that. And I think it's happened because we we hear a lot, not just about all the healthcare workers on the front line who are taking care of us, but you hear so many people talking about delivery folks, cashiers, retail clerks, um, our, our postal carriers. You hear so much talk around, these are the people who are the real heroes because without these people going to work every day, that's how our society would shut down. And since a lot of those folks are making minimum wage, a lot of those folks are black and brown. There's an, there's, I think more, there's a, a connection and a sense of connectedness that maybe folks didn't have before or a deep appreciation for the UPS person who actually delivers your packages for the person at the grocery store, who's ringing up your groceries. You see them differently in a situation like this because they are still going to work every day. So that is where I think change is actually going to come from. I think there's also this thing about humanizing those people too. Mm -hmm. And, and suddenly they're essential workers, right? Mm -hmm. And suddenly, suddenly they have names Mm -hmm. and faces and, and I see what you're saying where a big part of, a big part of what the, the criminal justice system does is, renders people invisible by putting them behind walls. And perhaps if we can start to see the people that are not even yet behind walls as more as more connected to us than we previously acknowledged, then maybe that extends further to those behind bars too. Well, it does. And I also think it directly impacts because it's easy to throw marginalized people behind bars because by and large, our society doesn't care about black and brown folks and poor folks. But now that we're, there's this connection that we have to people who maybe we didn't see before, now when something happens, there's like, no, wait a minute. I know that person. I'm connected yeah. to that person. So we speak up before. We stick up for people before because they are we now. It's not just that person over there. It's like, no, that's the person that I see every day. That's the person who helped me. And now we're connected. So, and it seems, I don't know if it seems trite or hokey, but that's how movements start, right? That's, that's where connection starts, when communities stand up for one another. And our, our country is so set up that communities are sort of separate. But when we start to dissolve those walls, and, and compassion is a wonderful way to dissolve those walls and, and, see, and to really see each other, that's when you see somebody get arrested on the subway for jumping a turnstile somebody's more people speak up it's not just like oh there's that person it's like no i know that person because that person's me it's funny that we're in this period of everyone has to put on a mask and in a sense there's all there's this other kind of metaphoric mask that we're all being asked to remove Mm -hmm. too absolutely i want to get back a little bit into you know aside from aside from the pandemic, your work, your work at Rikers. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I see it as such a beacon at what you do, this one-on-one work inside of that system. Like I literally imagine you 
as like a little lighthouse <laughs> on that island, you know? <laughs> um, as like the Rikers Island lighthouse. And at the same time, you were just talking about how the system is doing what it's supposed to in that it's it's putting people behind bars, right? People that don't that should not be there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so I'm wondering how you navigate working in this system. And I thought about this too, going in more on a weekly basis to MDC, but how you daily, daily, how you navigate this system um, that should essentially not exist. Right. You know, it's something that I, I struggle with a lot. I, 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 I struggle with it, honestly, just about every day. Um, so just to, to give you sort of an idea of, of what I do, I, people have the ability to opt into this wellness program. So it's optional. Right. And I think that's, that's really important that this isn't a a forced thing that people can do. So people can, um, decide that they want to participate in one part of the wellness program or, or all parts of the wellness program. So that's acupuncture, wellness coaching, and um, mindfulness. So people come down and see one of the, you know, one of us on our team and they come in and sit with me and we talk for a little bit. And then we, you know, I let folks really lead what happens. Sometimes it's I, I work with a lot of people actually who have established practices. So we just, we sit together or I do a guided med- meditation or even some movement, or sometimes it's just talking. Um, but I think the the biggest thing that happens is that we both get a chance to just to see each other. It's so easy to be rendered invisible once you're in jail. Um, you become like a last name. You just become, you know, an inmate and you're no longer a person. So it's an opportunity to just see somebody and and just acknowledge them as a person, which is important. And I think sometimes I, I get so caught up and how big it all is and how heavy it all is that I can sometimes lose sight of the fact that I sometimes feel like I am the only person there and I'm not. There are, there are some incredible people doing unbelievable work who work on the island. Um, but because I work you know, by myself and I see people one-on-one, it can feel sometimes really overwhelming. Like, will this, will this ever end? And just to go in and be a part of this whole machine, I struggle. Am I helping maintain the system? Um, but I also feel like it's important that I bear witness to what's going on because I am a civilian and I think it's important that somebody sees what happens every day there, that somebody brings a human face to a system that is not human. And that's not to say that there aren't humans who work in the system, but the system itself is very inhumane. And I think that's the thing that has me going every day when people get excited to come down to meditation or, you know, sometimes there's people who are waiting to see me. And lots of times if you have to wait for a service inside jail, there can be frustration that you have to wait because there is so much hurry up and wait. But when I hear people outside of my office talking to each other, waiting patiently, or the opposite happens where somebody says, oh, I know somebody else is waiting to see you, so I'm not going to sit that long today so they can come in. There's this community and connection starts to happen. And I realize that 
if I'm not there, what, what happens? Those, you know, that goes away. So it's mm -hmm. a struggle. Um, but one that I'm grateful for. And your, and your work, like you're saying is so intimate and personal and in the machine, like you're saying is so I don't want to say small as in significant, but small as in minute mm -hmm. and precise. Yeah, it is small. It's small and it's quiet. Right. Um, and I can, I can, I can be very big, right? I can, I can be very big. I can take up lots of space. I think in, for various reasons, I think I, I used to want to take up a lot of space just because I felt like the world was, you know, sort of trying to make me small and in doing this work, you realize that the work is in the small moments and it's not about me, but it's about giving moments to people for them just literally to exhale um, and just to be quiet. And I used to struggle with that. I used to struggle because I would want the change to be so big. Like, can we just sit and meditate and have this whole thing just dissolve down? <laughs> can, we, can it all just fall apart? Can we sit and meditate this all away? And, <laughs> and then I, and then I come back to reality um, and somebody opens their eyes and says, you know, thank you. I appreciate you. And I realize that that has to be enough, you know, and it's not about me, but that's enough for them in that moment. And that's, that's what the work does. And it can have a ripple effect and it's small ripples that most of which I probably never see or will even understand. Um, but it's the commitment, I think, to the smallness that is both really powerful and really frustrating. <laughs> it can be so frustrating um, in the best way to just sit with the smallness and when there's so much going on and you want you want to just take a sledgehammer to everything, but but you can't. To smell some lavender. Yeah. 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 And and like we also talk about how that type of care can because eventually Rikers is no longer going to be. Yes. You know? Oh, I can't wait. Um, <laughs> unemployed <laughs> yeah and and we talk about how how that extends and a lot of people I'm sure I'm sure that the people that come to you and and you know a number of folks that you know when we've been together and then when I've gone out on my own to ask hey how can I like find this like this thing um when I leave and yeah, I'm getting into the reentry conversation, right? Yeah. Where, yeah. where we talk about what does this be, what does this care beyond a particular space look like, and and that that what is the bridge, right? Because you're not going to work there forever. We're talking a little bit about how mm, maybe this pandemic could 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 open up some eyes, right? Which is obviously not enough in and of itself, but. Yeah, I don't know. What is what does this bridge look like? And 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 for the lack of a better term, like how can that work that you're doing that we're calling small, as in precise and, and momentary, 
um, become something cultural and yeah, you know what I mean? yeah, I do. I do. And I think it's a great question. I think, I think it goes back to a little bit of what we were talking about before when we were having conversations about people being, um, sort of awakened to the idea that we have folks who are incarcerated, maybe who shouldn't be and people being seen who maybe haven't been seen before. And I think what we're really talking about is acknowledging trauma, right? And that we see that people are, there are inequities that are happening and people are living uh, differently than other people and who are being actively oppressed. And acknowledging that incarceration is trauma. We, it's a trauma imposed on someone, usually on top of another trauma, whether it's a single incident trauma that happened to somebody, whether we're talking about intergenerational trauma that somebody's dealing with or historical trauma that somebody's dealing with. Incarceration is a trauma. And I think as we, we have to start acknowledging that and provide support for that. Just the way that we provide reentry support for folks, whether it's job training, I think we need to talk about reentry support for healing. Like you, we just put you through something and we need to give mm -hmm. you tools to get past it. So whether they're, you know, and I, I don't want to just talk about setting up another program, but I'm talking about yoga teachers really understanding what it looks like to be, you know, what incarceration is and being able to not necessarily speak that language specifically, but teach through that lens. What, when there's meditation teachers and, and really the whole wellness community adopting the idea that we talk a lot about marginalized communities, but incarceration needs to be a part of that conversation now actively. And that we acknowledge that as a particular trauma. So people are speaking to that. So there are safe places for folks to go. And then we start to take away some of that language like, oh, I'm in a pandemic and I feel like I'm in jail because that kind of language won't really be acceptable because we'll really understand what it means like to be incarcerated. And it's really not quite that at all. Um, I, I would love to see where teachers, meditation teachers are trained um, around the idea of incarceration and what it means like to come out. So they're supporting that. I would love to see meditation teacher training happening inside facilities. So we're also providing opportunities for people to work when they leave. Um, so we can talk about peer to peer support as well. Um, I think there's a lot of ways we can start to bridge the gap. Um, I think when, I think even social services need to have places where they can go to heal, that we have people who are actively in these places providing tools, holistic tools of healing for folks who've been incarcerated. I don't think it's a nice thing to have. I think it's necessary. And who, who, because that's a whole new model of care. Yeah, it is. Right? Yeah. And, and I don't think that that is necessarily something that should be coming from our current thought leadership, I hate the term, in wellness. Mm -hmm. I think people, the, the, the folks who need to be at the table are folks who have been incarcerated, who are part of these conversations, who can speak to what this would actually look like. I know that um, there's an organization, Transformation Yoga Project, that has actually a, a think tank that they have that has people who are both inside prison and outside talking about what 
what collective care looks like both inside and then transitioning to to, to post-incarceration, what life looks like post-incarceration. And whether it's through like yoga teacher trainings that they do, whether it's meditation teacher trainings, but that we have people who are having these conversations um, on a political level, um, on a community level to provide these, these places of care for folks. Right now, I you know, people ask me like, um, well, where can I go? And it's, it's like a handful of places and it's usually teachers that I know personally who are um, either steep deeply in this work or who have a really um, strong trauma background um, or a background in resilience training that that's where I send folks to. But I'd say the number one place that I send people to is actually an app called Liberate. Um, and it's one of my favorite, it's, it's one of it's my favorite app for for meditation and for hearing talks. But even though it it doesn't even talk about incarceration, it holds such a gentle space for people of color that it's a natural place where I send folks. Because Liberate is pulling on um, teachers that are trained in this, right, and are speaking specifically to. The traumas that, like you're saying, not necessarily specifically incarceration, but surround, but surround the emotional stress of being someone who's black or brown, um, or having uh, stepped 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 through life with what they call the thousand paper cuts of microaggressions. Right, liberate s- talks directly to that. Absolutely. Um, I also send people to um, New York Insight to their sanghas. Um, there's a queer sangha that I think is really powerful and a people of color sangha as well. Um, but that's really it. There, you know, other than a handful of studios and teachers that I know, it's not, it's not like, oh, go to any yoga studio or go to any meditation space and you will be right at home. Mm-hmm. What I mean, I, I don't about, feel at home at every yoga studio or meditation space. Sure. And I, I, there's a point about that I want, I want us to, to wrap into too. But the, the work that Transformation is doing that you mentioned, and they're in Philly. Uh-huh. And they're doing, the, they're doing the trainings, but they're, correct me if I'm wrong, they're doing the trainings on the inside, right? Yes. Yes. Um, I think they are... A, about to start their sixth one, uh, their sixth 200 hour. Um, Yoga Alliance certified teachers who um, teach on the end, who, who continue to teach once they become certified. And um, some people, when people are released too, who are, who are teaching actually um, when they get home. And what's exciting about that for me is that it hands the microphone over in ways that we don't often see in this space. It hands the platform over Mm -hmm. so that when we're talking about this culture of care, they get to be the Imagineers in that space. Oh, and that's necessary. You know, it's so much of, you know, conversations that we have around taking care of people has often been steeped in here's what's best for you rather than asking what you need and and better tell us what you need here are the resources for you to go ahead and do that 
so that also wraps into to the other to the place I wanted to bring us, which was which was around something that you mentioned specifically in that very first article that you wrote for for the magazine that we were working on. Mm-hmm. Um, and in that article, you mentioned you yourself going into a space. Actually, you can share this. You can share this. Uh, um, yeah, the, um, that was the trauma, the, the piece writing um, about trauma, being a trauma-sensitive yoga teacher. I had, I had gone to class, and I'm, I'm pretty sure it was Philando Castile, who had just gotten killed. And I was, I was really, I was so sad. I was, um, physically sad and really needed a yoga class. And, um, I was in the back row and the teacher was using all of this bypassy language that just got me so angry. And she was specifically saying things like, if you're having a better thought, just choose a better thought. And it was all of this language steeped in not being negative. And we have the ability to change our thoughts and change what we're feeling. And I, I was so triggered. I was so triggered because I, I didn't feel seen. And, and, and I was also, you know, mad on some level because it's not like I expected everybody to be talking about it, but it was really all over the news. Like literally, I think that afternoon and it just felt like nobody, specifically this teacher just was just moving on with her day. And I feel like that had happened to me so many times in the yoga space where my blackness or my queerness was just overlooked as something that was too political or not something that I was going to address or something that just needed to be bypassed over. And if I could just put a smile on my face, you know, I would be fine. And I just remember feeling really angry. And I think it, it just solidified the kind of, the kind of work that I do in the way that I teach that teaching is not about me. Teaching is about creating a space for people to feel what they need to feel in the moment. And I've got nothing to do with that. Nothing. My goal is to set up a place of a safe container to hold that space, but it's not about me directing people to feel anything specific. And this is so relevant to what some what a re-entry model of care might look like too, as we're talking about, oh gosh, who gets to build that bridge? Who gets mm-hmm. to sit in the front of the mm-hmm. room? Yeah. And it's not, yeah, absolutely. I don't, I think that, you know, if I have any ability, it would be to get people who are formerly incarcerated to have the conversations with people that they need to have them with, but not really being at the table, um, providing support, tools and resources, pointing people to money, getting money for people. But it's really time to start sharing privilege and sharing power when we have the ability to do so. It's so important. And so now you're at a place, we were just talking about this but now you're at a place where you have such a practice of, for you personally, a practice rooted in joy mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and in love. Mm-hmm. And so I wonder if we could chat a bit about the distinction between what that teacher said 
that day where, um, I can't remember your exact wording of, of just put a smile, basically just put a smile on, you know, um, the distinction between something like that and the place of joy that you're coming from now, because there is a distinction, right? Between that, that bypassy thing and, and actualized joy. Yeah. I think, I think when I talk about, cause I do use the word love a lot. And I think when, I don't think, I do, (laughs) I do, but when I say love, I want to make it clear when I'm talking about love, I'm talking about, I think this universal feeling and energy of unconditional acceptance. I think that's what I mean by love. And when there is space, and I'll, I'll talk from how I feel, when I can, when I can allow myself to unconditionally allow myself to feel whatever I am feeling, that is joy for me. Because in society, the society that we're in, this capitalistic white supremacist society, that has not been allowed. And it's still actively not allowed. And so when I give myself space to let myself feel whatever I'm feeling, that's allowing me to embrace this idea of joy. That's in, that's me allowing myself to feel love because I'm leaving room for me to be exactly as I am in a moment. That's freedom. Like that's liberation. When you don't have to stuff anything down, when you don't have to make anything go away or put on a mask or be a certain way because you're in a certain environment, when you can just be yourself unapologetically, there is... I smile even just saying those words to you right now. Like that is joyful. And I think that is very different than telling people to not hold on to the icky stuff, not hold on to the to the hard stuff. Because for a lot of people, there's a lot of inequity that's happening. And to to not acknowledge that is harm. That's that's harmful. The way is that a, Yeah, go ahead. Mm-hmm. I was just gonna I was just thinking you know, the way that the way that white people get to talk about joy is different to what your point was just now than the way that black folks get to talk about joy. Mm-hmm. And I was also I'm thinking about that. And in my other hand, I'm also thinking about how you talk about joy and resilience with folks on the inside, mm-hmm. too, because that's a different conversation for someone who, and I'm not saying black, white, inside, outside, uh-huh. but um, but it's a different conversation for you and I to talk about joy like this, universal love, than you're having one-on-one on the inside. Yes, and sometimes the conversations are the same because the conversations that I have with people are often about what's what's literally happening in that moment inside jail, but conversations also extend to what happened before and what happened after. And that there's this, that it's not just about being in jail. I know the, the reason my program was started was to deal with the adjustment of jail. But what I what I do actually is not just that. Um, I don't, I, you know, I'm, I don't think I do that. I think what I do is pro- provide a space for people to, to make room to see themselves 
in a way that's loving and compassionate. And that can actually have nothing to do with the jail experience, but it can help folks manage the trauma that is happening because they're incarcerated. I don't know if that makes Mm -hmm. sense. Mm -hmm. Totally. Totally. Um, And there, and you know, and there's joy in that. Like, and there's just laughter. Like I think sometimes, and I mean, and you've seen this too, cause you, you teach in jail that it's not always just, I think people think like it's this scary place and that people don't laugh when there's like actually lots of laughter. Um, <laughs> because you got to make some shit funny, right? Or you'll just cry all day. Like you can't, like you just like, sometimes it just has to be funny. Like it just has to be. Um, and that's not, I think, bypassing. I think that's just, you sometimes have to laugh at the absurdity of it all sometimes, or you'll go crazy. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the classes are, 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 there's more laughter in the class than any class I've ever taken on the outside. Right. Right. I've had people comment actually, um, on either, like my office is in the middle of two other offices and often there is like really loud laughter coming from my office. And because I think that's part of it, like a lot of people say for like the time that I'm in here, I actually feel like I'm not in this place. And Mm -hmm. I don't think that's escape. I think that's actually somebody making themselves so big that they're bigger than the experience of Rikers, even if it's just for the half hour that we're together inside my office. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There's power in that. There's, you know, that's something you, you take with you. There are, there are a lot of folks that I've worked with who've never done joy practices before, or even the idea of taking time for themselves. That happens so much where people have never sat with themselves or done a loving kindness meditation or taken a moment to say like, yeah, I'm, I'm worth saying I love you too. I'm worth that. That can be, that, that's transformative. Yeah. And in that way, the the joy is the revolution. Yeah, it, it it is the revolution to to and to smile, and and circumstances like that, not as a way to pretend it's not happening, but because you're not going to take that from me too. That's still mine. Mm-hmm. That's still that's still mine, and that that I think is a, a revolutionary act to laugh to love to to find a moment of happiness or peace in an environment that is actively trying to take all of that away from you. That's mm-hmm. a fuck you to that. So I, I know that we're in this time of resting mm-hmm. and and quiet mm-hmm. and not and not being productive, but I am going to ask you this anyway. Okay. Um, <laughs> because it's kind of vague and it's kind of it's kind of amorphous, but I'm curious what you're building right now. You know, like what what are you building? Uh either in your in your life uh-huh. or I I know you've got we didn't we didn't even really talk about the other things that you've done and and will do. But but what is it that you're using this time or even the past year, right, to cultivate? You know, I'm, I'm working on, I think that the, the number one thing that I'm really excited about is creating um, a retreat space for people who are, who've been impacted by incarceration and to find a place 
for people to start to heal from the trauma of incarceration. Um, that is the number one thing that I'm working on that um, I'm really excited about because I've already talked to folks about it who are really excited about supporting it. So that's one thing that I have been, I've actually had the time now to work more on with, you know, with this time out, with this pause um, has, has given me the space to do that. Um, actually in a few months too, something that I was working on before is a, a television show called the lost resort, which is about the idea of, of wellness and what that looks for folks, what that looks like for folks to have, who've encountered some trauma. Um, and I'm, and I'm hopeful that that will be able to be a way to shed some light and to bring some awareness, um, around the idea of, incarceration and it's and it's the impacts of it and the effects of it and how we can help folks heal from that um so i think those are the two things that i that i'm most excited about right now um one thing that i have been talking about in terms of you know work at rikers is putting together a meditation teacher training program which is really exciting for folks who are incarcerated right now and in jail um because i think that could be a really powerful tool and that's a way to start bringing people to the table to do this work. So it's not just, so it's not just us, right? Like I would love for us not to have to do this work mm -hmm. and, and provide tools to other people. So we're talking mm -hmm. about peer to peer support. Mm -hmm. It's a lot going on. Yeah. And it's all good. Like I'm excited. Um, and I've been taking a lot of time to rest. I think that I had mentioned the first two weeks, you know, of um, quarantine, I think I was just decompressing. Um, going inside every day is is a lot, and I I sometimes underestimate the impact that it takes on me, both physically and mentally. And so I, I think mm -hmm. I needed a few weeks just to decompress from that, and then starting to say like, okay, what's you know, what what feels right that I feel like I can move forward a little bit and do some work with not feeling like I'm forced to be, to be productive, you know? Mm -hmm. Sure. Yeah. I mean, you put your mask on yeah. first. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, and now, and now I, this is, I mean, this is the first I'm hearing of it, the, the, the training that you would start, but that's incredible. Oh, I'm so excited about it. Um, yeah, really excited about it. Um, I want to start with um, just a six-week sort of introductory program around mindfulness and meditation practices, and then that moves into um, a training. So stay tuned. <laughs> <laughs> stay tuned. Well, thank you so much for, for joining me, for joining us. This has been a pleasure. Oh, thank you. I'm so grateful. Thank you. While this podcast is coming to an end, our work in the world is just beginning. This week's call to action is to join the movement to end mass incarceration in New York City by going to unlockjustice.org. There is also a link in the show notes for how to support incarcerated individuals impacted by COVID-19 through mutual aid efforts. And you can follow Onika on Instagram at Onika Mays and Ryan at Ryan underscore Lemire. Special thanks to DJ Drez for the amazing soundtrack. You can check out his music at djdrez.com. 
and to our executive producer who puts it all together and makes it sound great, Trevor Exter. And thank you for being here today. You can stay in the know and engaged by subscribing to our free weekly newsletter, Well Read, at citizenwell.org. Citizen Podcast is community-inspired and crowdsourced. That's how we keep it real. Join our community on Patreon for as little as $2 per month so that we can keep doing the work of curating content that matters for citizens who care. And don't forget to rate us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and Google Play. And share the love, y'all, by telling your friends to check us out. <laughs>